We are on a mission. A mission to save and revitalize independent pharmacy. On the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast, you'll get actionable business advice. Hear stories from industry leaders. And share a laugh or two with us. Fuel your passion for pharmacy. One conversation at a time. Four. Three. Two. One. Welcome to the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Key, president of Pioneer X, and today I'm here with my co-host, Marsha. Hi, I'm Marsha Bivens. I'm the director of marketing for Pioneer X. Today, our guest is Tony Minetti. He is the owner of Bell Pharmacy in Camden, New Jersey. Tony, welcome. Well, I don't know that we've met, Tony. Um, Jeff Key, have we met? I don't think so. I'm, I'm, I'm older, and don't, not, not I, from, but I usually remember faces. Yes, small space. Small space. Small, small memory space. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> I harass him about that all the time. Yeah, my, my statement I say when I can't remember something is that when your room is really full, it's harder to find things, right? And uh, she says it's a little room. So Must be a small room. <laughs> must be a small room. <laughs> we, we both remember different things. So I think, you, I think your brain prioritized to remember things that probably you prioritize, but... I find that I'm forgetting things more and more these days. Yeah, or just it takes a little bit longer to retrieve. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you can imagine that picture of a room, right, that is just full of stuff. And if it's not on top, right, it just takes a little bit longer to get to, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you know about where it is, and eventually you get to it. Sounds like an episode of Hoarders. An episode of Hoarders. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and this is Marsha Bivens. Uh, Marsha Bivens, our marketing director. Hi, Marsha. Hey, nice to meet you, Tony. So just tell us, um, let, let's just start off with the, a little bit of personal stuff. How did, how did you get in pharmacy? I actually started working for my grandfather when I was 14 years old at his pharmacy, Dog and Arrows in Camden. Okay. And uh, I never, I've never done anything than work in pharmacies in Camden ever since, and I'm 52 years old now. So uh, that gives you an idea of how long I've been in the profession and also in the city. So layout, where is, where is Camden in, in New Jersey and, and the relationship to like New York and that other stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, Camden's right across the river from Philadelphia. If you want to compare it to something, it would be like Hoboken to New York City. Okay. Or Red Bank. You know, we're just, uh, you know, we're right across the river. And is it, uh, how many people? What's, what's the population of Camden, New Jersey like? Population somewhere around 85,000. Okay. So smaller town? It's smaller, yes. Nice. Yes. Very, there's some very pretty parts of New Jersey. Um, and then of course there's some very city parts of New Jersey that I'm driving through that haven't driven through there in the past. Yeah. We have a fascinating dynamic here because in New Jersey you have, well, we'll take Camden for instance, it's probably one of the most impoverished, uh, cities in, in the nation. Really? And nine miles down, you'll have Morristown and Sentimenton that are two of the most affluent. And then it's, 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 uh, it's quite a mix you have all in a very small area. Um, you know, and then there's other parts of Jersey where you go out and it's almost like being in Georgia, um, but you know, that's down in the South part of it. Yeah. So you, so you started off 14 working in your grandfather's pharmacy, your grand, mm-hmm. so, so I assume your grandfather was a pharmacist. Does that mean, was, yes. you, was your dad a pharmacist? Uh, no, this is on my mother's side. Okay. Uh, okay. My father's a, my father's a chef as is my brother. They're in the far more, uh, 
the far more uh, attractive fields, I guess. Oh, <laughs> so they're everybody, a chef. Everybody loves chefs, you know. So that, that's assist, cool. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so so both chefs. parents were chefs, right? Your medicine is a chef, right? It, in a way, yes. Kind of compounding. You're, you're, com- if- you're, you're, you're building creatively and 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 being a chef could be compounding. Uh, yeah, well, it, in many ways, when you work in a kitchen, you got to learn how to manage high volume uh, with accuracy and delivering mm-hmm. quality product. And it, it really trained me well for doing what I do in retail pharmacy because a lot of the operational uh, dynamics are very similar, believe it or not. Yeah, and somebody didn't somebody release a book about the science of cooking? They spent a lot of time researching and stuff about really more science. Yes. Uh, He's, I think um, it's legitimately called the science of cooking. Oh yeah, okay. Look at that. Must have been mm-hmm. sitting on top. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so grandfather had a pharmacy. So, do mm-hmm. you own that pharmacy now, or is it is it still in? I guess uh, is it still one that you own or you're a part of, or have you opened your own and? Well, it's an interesting story. The way it went, when I graduated uh, Philadelphia College of Pharmacy in 1993, um, I bought into my grandfather's business. It was a family business. And then my sister, who graduated subsequently in the year uh, 2000, uh, she then bought into the business. In 1997, we purchased Bell Pharmacy, which is where I am now. Uh, and in 2013, due to retirements and just differing uh, ideas about business, uh, the family, uh, some people stayed at Dogonero's Pharmacy, and my sister and I took over things at Bell Pharmacy. So that's where we've, where we've been ever since. All right. So so over this time, from being 14 to being in your 50s in pharmacy, what's the most profound thing you've learned? If you had to boil it all down to one, what, what give, stands us the, out the most? give us the wisdom of the ages. One of uh, one of my professors at the time, who's uh, who's very prominent now, his name is Dr. Cal Knowlton. Uh, oh, Dr. Cal. Cal. We know Cal. Yep. Yep. I had him for the practice of pharmacy back in uh, 1992. I actually did. Interesting story. Well, one project was either to start a pharmacy from scratch or to buy an existing pharmacy through a purchase. I'd made Bell Pharmacy my project. I got an A. And uh, Cal wrote a personal note on things. Still, still uh, rings to me today that he said, "Watch out, Camden! Here comes Tony Minetti." Nice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that is, so uh, Cal spoke at that time about a post-dispensing future for pharmacy. And now, 1992, that was mind blowing. I mean, I, I looked at it as we dispense prescriptions. That's how mm-hmm. we get paid. That's how we make money. Right. And Cal always spoke about pharmacists as practitioners and robotics taking over dispensing and all these different um, these different concepts that pharmacists would be able to start practicing more towards the top of their degree. Uh, and seeing that transition occur over time uh, has really been something to something to see. And uh, a lot of what Cal spoke about back then uh, assisted us in positioning ourselves for where we are now, which is really a post you know, a post dispensing future. Hmm. Very cool. Do you keep in touch with Cal? Any stuff he's uh, every, doing? Yes. Every once in a while we, uh, we happen to do a similar forum together or I'll shoot him a quick note. Uh, you know, Cal's a very busy guy to Bula Rasa and it's, uh, it, he's got a lot going on, but, uh, 
the nicest, most down to earth man I've uh, I've ever met. Very, very true. Very accurate. So you offer a lot of services in your pharmacy. Uh, tell us about those. Well, we started we started getting into you know different areas by getting creative. New Jersey has what's called a collaborative practice agreement that we're allowed to do that allows pharmacists to uh, almost act as dispensers as long as it's subsequent to uh, some some agreement that's approved by the Board of Pharmacy and maybe sometimes by the Board of Medical Examiners. Uh, we started off uh, initially years ago. Our first pro foray into this was with Narcan. Um, before Narcan became the thing, uh, you know, we saw that it was, you know, when the opioid uh, crisis was really full blown in Camden and what was happening, we, we, uh, we, dis we discussed this idea of Narcan. We got together with a physician, formed a collaborative agreement, and we were so aggressive in the marketing, I, I would say, or I should say the um, marketing probably isn't the right word, but the counseling and the promotion of Narcan to Initially, it was just our opioid patients who were on it long term, uh, but quickly we revised that model uh, to make it a mandatory, every time a patient came in with any opiate, um, we, we, we approached them to discuss Narcan and to uh, recommend that they get it. Of course, uh, New Jersey was very quick to uh, have that covered by all insurance companies. And one of the interesting things that we ran into is, you know, someone comes in, an older person, let's say with Tylenol with codeine from a some sort of procedure, and we would recommend Narcan. They, the first the first uh, reaction would be, well, well, I'm not a drug addict. Why would I need that? And, you know, we always likened it to keeping Ipecac or an EpiPen on hand. I said, you know, I don't foresee this being a problem for you. I said, look, you can't take one and then maybe take too many. If you get groggy and you don't remember, I said, or worse, if you have a child in the house that actually consumes the Tylenol with codeine you have, you have the ability to, you know, provide a, a you know, to provide a sort of rescue dose of Narcan while the EMTs arrive and seconds matter in these situations. And it was so well received that eventually the state itself uh, incorporated this idea of every time an opiate prescription is uh, is issued, uh, pharmacists are, are required to counsel and offer Narcan. Uh, so that was our that was our first, you know, our first foray into, um, you know, more, you know, more getting creative mm -hmm. and and utilizing that ability to have those agreements. So how did how did they find out you were doing that? Well, we're sort of active on social media, and we have a lot of interaction with the Department of Health. They ask me about nice. it, and um, next thing you know, there it was. A, 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 an issue, a, um, excuse me, a, a memo came out from, uh, you know, from the Attorney General's office, and they issued a standing order uh, for all pharmacists. We had to register with the state, but instead of, whereas we went and we formed our own collaborative agreement with another physician, now any pharmacist was able to uh, have a similar agreement, but by getting it with the Department of Health and through the Attorney General versus going out and, and doing it all mm -hmm. on their own. So that's, that's extremely progressive. I mean, there must have been a, a crazy um, opioid abuser stat that helped push that into place for New Jersey. Um, yeah, you know, and, and we have a very we have a very challenging population in Camden. You know, we're at the we're at the nexus of so many different uh, health care issues. And it was much of what we did with Narcan that kind of brought us into our, you know, our next, you know, our next idea was, um, you know, the, the issue in access to PrEP, um, you know, Truvada for PrEP, Descovy, you're seeing more about it now. 
Um, but I looked at prescription of PrEP very much like I did um, the prescription of Narcan. Uh, really, if you're taking Truvada or Descovy, you can really only use it for one thing. And um, you know, at the time, I, I had a, uh, a housemate who was, who was a gay man, and he asked me about this idea of PrEP. This is somewhere around 2015. I had never heard of it. Wow. Um, yeah, I said, he goes, well, I looked it up and I said, well, it's Truvada. I said, it's been around for a while, but usually that's just used to treat HIV. And he's like, no, 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 they're, I, I'm hearing more about this. It's supposed to prevent HIV. And so when I did the research into it, it was like, wow, it does. They had trials in, in Africa over 2010, 2012 that showed these phenomenal results, uh, but it was failing to get traction here in the, in the United States. I can never understand why. Uh, but I looked at this coming up in that that era in, 19, in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, you know, if you tested HIV positive, that was almost it was a terminal it was terminal diagnosis. I mean, you were going to die of AIDS eventually. And there was so much focus on let's find a vaccine. And, you know, we never really quite got there. And I and I you know, the question I said to myself, I said, how could they have something that prevents transmission transmission of HIV? by upwards of 98, 99%. And this would this would have been hailed as a miracle in 1992, mm -hmm. and it's Absolutely. gone completely under. So we, you know, we've, we've tried to work with different infectious disease uh, specialists to try to form that collaborative agreement where we would be able to um, prescribe uh, Truvada, now Descovy for PrEP, uh, on-site in the pharmacy. And we came up with a pretty, we came up with a pretty, um, you know, pretty creative model uh, where you were, you were able to do the entire visit and initiate PrEP therapy right here. We, we partnered with the lab to take the blood test. We had the rapid HIV test to make sure they weren't HIV positive. Uh, and we came up with a whole infrastructure to uh, launch this program. And of course, it launched the same month as COVID <laughs> broke in 2020. And uh, that was a whole other issue. So everything focused to that and away from uh, this issue. Do you think that'll be something that the state picks up and kind of does the same type of, you don't have to have a specific collaborative practice agreement to do that, that they expand that to other pharmacies in the state or? Yes, that's what we're pushing for. Uh, the state loves our model. Um, they've actually issued, they've actually issued, um, you know, statements on it. They say, this is the model of how we should be addressing uh, the HIV crisis in New Jersey. And uh, Governor Murphy had an HIV free by 2025 initiative. But again, that was that was pre-COVID when every yep, all the resources and attention sort of switched. But yeah, there is a, um, you know, the, New Jersey has uh, a, a program where they fund community organizations uh, called PrEP clinics. And uh, these are typically run by community, you know, community-based groups, nonprofits uh, that go out into the community and they, they, they go out and they try to recruit people who are at risk uh, to try to initiate PrEP therapy. And I actually got to attend that. I'm a certified PrEP counselor. Okay. And in doing that, I learned about how difficult it is for, uh, you know, for these community organizations to get patients from acceptance through all these different steps that they have to take going to a lab, waiting for results, going to a doctor, waiting for an appointment, going to the pharmacy, waiting for, and we pulled it all in-house where the entire process would take one visit, 
uh, and in less than an hour. Uh, we actually got down to the point where we had teleprep available. So when we got done um, working the patient to the point that they were ready for their visit, we could have the visit immediately on a pad and the patient walks out with um, you know, their first prescription for PrEP in hand. And that was always the goal because there's so many points where you can lose that patient. Um, th this, this model really helped and the centralization of the data that the state was trying to collate, uh, you know, the PrEP centers, the PrEP, you know, the, um, you know, the PrEP clinics that the state was funding, the patients would go to a pharmacy and they'd sort of just disappear. Um, you know, they either, they would, they would lose contact with their PrEP guidance counselor or, but right. when you, when we brought those two entities together in one collaborative unit, there, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of interaction between, uh, you know, the medical side of it and the community organizational side of it. And if we see that a patient's coming up on their final refill of PrEP, we had the ability to tell the, the, um, you know, the PrEP navigators, listen, you need to touch base with so-and-so. We've got to get their doctor's appointment before the end of the month. And that really improved outcome and the amount of patients that were uh, remaining and refilling PrEP on a regular basis. Was the, um, was the telehealth doc, was that a local doctor or was it a state doctor? Uh, it was a local doctor that happened to be in the prep space, okay. and she only she really just specialized in this sort of thing. And uh, and again, we set this up when telehealth was, you know, sort of never going anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't like to say that there were a lot of positives uh, during the pandemic, but uh, you know, what what uh, retail pharmacy, community pharmacy, independent pharmacy was able to demonstrate during that time, I look as one of the bright spots. And telehealth is also one of those. Telehealth was something everybody shied away from. Uh, yeah. But now that it's, it's ubiquitous, uh, everybody accepts telehealth. All the payers pay for telehealth now because the, the value of the technology was realized during the course of, of the COVID pandemic. It seems like um, during the pandemic, you started up kind of a mobile immunization clinic, or did you start that up before the pandemic to to kind of help promote the um... the vaccinations? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we we started off with the idea of mobile immunization clinics because we get again we you know looking at the way pharmacists were able to do immunizations, uh, the idea of bringing that to schools. Uh, and even schools where uh, in Camden, you know, we have a high uh, undocumented immigrant um, population really? who maybe aren't getting access to health care like they like they could. And, uh, you know, the school will tell them, well, you're required to get your child these vaccines. And the parents are just. What do we do? Right. Uh, so our idea was to partner with the Camden School District and bring that ability to immunize uh, the kids who were going into school who hadn't had their immunizations yet or those who were being who needed to be boosted um, you know later on as they became teenagers uh, they you know the offering of the HPV uh, vaccine to those who were appropriate for it but it was the idea of partnering with uh, the school district and utilizing that access to the community uh, to help decrease those barriers to uh, to getting immunized. And that was that was our original concept um, for the mobile immunization clinic. Now, of course, again, uh, in the as when COVID hit, uh, it changed all of that. Mm -hmm. right. And but but we had the infrastructure in place where we were we had already prepared for this, not for a COVID vaccine, 
but for other vaccines. So we were very, uh, we were, we were very, we were very prepared to pivot and convert that vaccination program directly to COVID-19 vaccinations. So talk to us about the process. I mean, that, that's, that's super, um, that you were able to work with the schools is just beyond impressive to me because working with schools on things can be quite difficult <laughs> trying to get anything accomplished. Um, and so tell us about your personal experiences now. <laughs> we, we, we say, uh, we say uh, public schools where our kids go to learn that adults don't make sense. Yes. Uh, hey, I have, I have three, I have three 14 year olds. So I'm learning that I'm not nearly as intelligent as I once thought that I was. <laughs> triplets. <laughs> yeah. Triplets. Wow. Yes, I do. Wow. Okay. That that's impressive. No wonder. <laughs> that was your reaction and you found out. Yeah. Yeah. So are they, are they all different or any identical? Yeah, no, they're all no, they're all three are different and uh thank goodness for that. But I always said I wanted to be done having kids by age 37. I never expected to have 3 at age 37, but I guess I kept to my I kept to my original life plan. <laughs> so how do they how, how do, do they get along well? Do they not oh, get yeah, along? That, that's how, how does, built in best friend? But maybe, I imagine they can yeah. be com- built in competitors. So how's their relationship? Believe it or not, they get along really well. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes a little too well, and they they're very good at teaming up and completely disorienting me. So I have to try to keep the keep the alliances separated and deal with them one on one. Yeah, I had um, uh, I have two brothers who are identical twins with each other, not with me, mm-hmm. and um, they were like that. They were like they had their friend, so they didn't really need other friends. Uh, even so much that at a very young age, they they developed their own language. So they, they initially had their own language between the two of them that nobody else understood. I mean, you see lots of Instagram videos where twins are sitting there and they're having a conversation and it's a baby talk, but they know that they understand each other. Yeah. That's, it's super and I wonder if that, that's true with triplets. Yeah. Uh, well, I haven't seen that, but what I can tell you is this. I have no idea what they're talking about just in general anymore. <laughs> just so. in general, yeah. <laughs> to all of it seems like its own language. I, they say things I, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun, uh, fun age. Marsha just had one turn 13. Yes, and I have one that's going into her senior year in high school and then off to college. Is it a mix of girls and boys? Uh, it's two boys and a girl. Two boys and a girl. So, yep, so we, have, we got the whole, got the whole uh, experience all in one shot. <laughs> yeah, Se- seems like a lot of joy, to be honest. I think it sounds sounds fun. Makes me smile just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. It's a fun, fun so, piece. Back to your immunization, working with the schools mm-hmm. and immunizations. Talk to me about that process. I mean, how one getting to work with the schools—that—that's a hurdle I would love to hear about. And then number two, I guess, talk to me about your process as far as you know, recording and recording and capturing uh, the patient data. Yeah, is it weird with undocumented work with undocumented children? Do they are they? You know, well, can you report it to the state registry? Is it you know, is there more sensitivities there? Well, believe it or not, the most of the undocumented immigrants are covered by um, New Jersey Medicaid or the managed care organizations. Okay. So by and large, they tend to be insured. OK, even there, you can get the insurance without having to prove um, immigration status. Right. So the schools are usually very good at get, at making sure the resources that are going to uh, the students or the resources that the students can avail themselves of are realized. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, you know, so much of what we do is this idea of forming partnerships 
uh, with community-based groups. And the schools are one of the biggest ones, of course, because in the community, you know, they're hands-on every day. They're seeing things that we don't see. Uh, but we understand that, you know, in Camden, there's a huge access issue. For, for some reason, we have world-class health facilities in the city, but uh, the residents still continue to lag in taking advantage of those services uh, and even in public health, health outcomes themselves. So what we try to do is partner up what we can bring uh, to the table uh, with what these community reach that these community organizations have into the community. So, you know, for us, it, it's expanding our, our practice and our patient base. And for the community groups that are involved, they feel like they have a partner. It's like now they have a problem. They know who to go to to help Absolutely. them solve it. So uh, it, are you working, though, with win, the win, indivi win. individual school? So are you going to so-and-so elementary school? Or are you like going to the, the district and saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this solution for the district? Well, you know, part of what, you know, it, it comes down to you have to be able to make contact within the district. And there's a lot of confusions. The school board that I go to, do I go to the building principals? Right. Do I go to the superintendent? Yep. Uh, you know, I'm active in a, or, you know, our, our business is active in um, the Camden Schools Foundation. And we provide scholarships uh, to kids who are on their way to college. Um, so I'm sort of interwoven into the fabric of the school district just through my my charitable work with you know, with the Camden Schools Foundation. So the the conversations were a lot easier for me to have, uh, you know. But I think that that's you know it's a good lesson for those pharmacists who are going out there and wondering, well, how do I how do I integrate more fully into the community? And part of that is becoming involved in you know in in philanthropy uh, locally. You know, there's so much of a need. So many uh, businesses like to say, well, we, let's send money here and send money there. And there's so much need many times in your own community that if you address that first, uh, it's more of a direct connection. Uh, I think it's to me, it's a it's a better use of of, you know, of, of your charitable contributions. But that that is really what opened the door, because I'm in I'm in, you know, more in more settings where we're just having a conversation. And then when you can do that with the superintendent, they'll be like, oh, well, call this one, this one, this one, and we'll get it all set up and let us know what you want to do. Uh, that helps as opposed to just making a cold call. Superintendents are, of especially urban districts are very, very busy and you're not likely going to connect. So it's being involved as part of your community rather than just being a business that serves the community. Uh, that's something we've always believed in, and it's, it's you know, one of the hallmarks of why this business has been around for over 90 years. We have a little bit this debate of, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift out a little bit, then I'm going to bring this back home, and, and we'll see where I'm going, but of do we call ourselves community pharmacy independent pharmacy? And, and, and we, we've tended drifted to being saying more we're independent pharmacy because the, the chains have kind of adopted, you know, we're a community pharmacy too, right? But, um, but, when, I, but when I hear you talking, I, I was like, it falls more I was like, wow, he's a community, community pharmacist, pharmacy. right? Where, where community, he's yeah. not just in the community, he's part of the community. And, and calling him an independent pharmacist doesn't really doesn't doesn't really this doesn't describe this person I'm talking to right now and and that maybe we need to not shy away from it because the chains are trying to steal it 
And because we do a lot of time, you know, trying to convince pharmacists that if you're behind the counter all the time, you're going nowhere. You got to get out. You got to talk to public health. You know, guys like Eric Larson that we've talked to on here and stuff like that, who when he bought a pharmacy, he made sure that he funded it in such a way that he wasn't behind the, you know, get enough funds when you open that pharmacy that you've, you've got enough money stored up in the beginning not to start off behind the counter. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'll, I'll start off behind the counter till I grow my business. Well, you're growing your business not behind the counter, right? So Yeah, it's knocking um, on the doors and, and talking to, like, school boards and getting – and he's he's knocking on doors and talking to nursing homes. Um, and, a call, like, we were there when he got – his first batch of uh, COVID vaccines in and he called one of his pharmacies up and goes, Hey, I've got 50 shots. I can be there tomorrow. Yeah. yeah so here we go. So I'm not an independent pharmacy, I'm not a community pharmacist. I'm a in the community pharmacist. Yeah. I like, I like being the community pharmacist. I typically refer to myself. I always say an independent community pharmacist. Um, yeah. But what I would always, what I always recommend to anyone who's in, um, the independent communities pharmacy space. It goes back to what Cal Norton told me many years ago. You got to get away from that. We're never going to outcompete the chains. You just aren't. You know they've got much greater resources, much you know both financially and uh, you know they can do. You know if you're going to fight them over Motrin and ibuprofen, you're going to be out of business because that's not where the future of pharmacy is. And one of the reasons that uh, you know, I don't want to say that it pleases me to see CVS closing 900 stores and all. In many ways, the chains are themselves becoming victims of their own economic model, uh, the PBM model of low reimbursements. That's all that they depend on. And as they continue to shave those margins down, that also impacts their brick and mortar stores. And, you know, they're not able to to keep themselves going on just dispensing prescriptions which is why we go you know, we go far beyond that and we really bring it into services you know we really look at okay what does you know my individual community need and you know we learned how valuable the community pharmacy is during the covid-19 pandemic i mean i i could tell you that in camden you know we were much like any other urban center that uh, was post world war 2 uh, it was a mostly european immigrant uh, population that we had, uh, every little neighborhood in Camden, each one of them had one, if not two, um, independent pharmacies that served that neighborhood. Um, because everybody knew that the Irish and the Italians and the Polish and the Hispanics, they were all different back then. And there was different culture, different language, different social mores, and their independent pharmacy knew how to speak to them in a way that made them comfortable. Yep. Uh, you know, as we've, as as most of the independent pharmacies have been driven out of the urban urban environment, unless uh, new graduates are willing to jump in and and assume and or do something like what I do and be an independent pharmacy owner, uh, we're experiencing pharmacy deserts, and you know we face that here in Camden. Um, we have a couple chain pharmacies on the outskirts of 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 the city, but we're a city of eighty five thousand residents, and it's a very diverse city. Um, people oftentimes, and it always drives me crazy, they'll refer to uh, Camden or you know any urban area sort of generically. Well, it's a community of color. That doesn't recognize the vast diversity um, when you're speaking about communities of color. 
you know, African-American is not the same as Dominican and Haitian and Caribbean. And um, Puerto Rican is not the same as Mexican or Brazilian or Ecuadorian. And and there's, you know, and we even have, it's less so now, but we even had an Asian population uh, that was largely Vietnamese. And, you know, Asian populations are also different. And you had very few of the places like me that knew how to work with their community, talk to their community members and get them over this idea of 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 uh, vaccine hesitation. Uh, you know, especially our, our community is largely African-American. And as we all know, there's uh, you know been a sort of uh, untrustworthy past when it comes to vaccinations. And many of many of my community, they live through that. Mm-hmm. And they came in genuinely concerned. You know, they're hearing this is what they need to do, but they need to hear it from someone that they're talking to almost as as, you know, someone they know, someone they trust. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you go over the you know, you go over the pros and cons with it. I won't get into all that because we all know what they are now of getting the vaccine and people made a decision. And what we did was we never really forced this on everybody. But what we did was, I mean, believe it or not, I actually found in our area vaccine frustration, that inability to get access to a vaccine is really was was a bigger concern than the vaccine hesitancy. Right. So much of the public relation effort that you saw on TV and on radio and everything had sort of acclimated everyone to this idea that maybe they should get the vaccine. But in Camden, especially because we have all these healthcare um campuses. Everyone from the suburbs comes in, they consume all the resources and lock all the community residents out. They just can't get access. So what we did was, you know, we not only tried to get the community over this idea of, you know, the vaccinations untrustworthy and get them over all the political rhetoric of it. But we, I I said, we guarantee that if you're a Camden resident, you will come in and get a vaccine. We don't have appointments. We didn't do pre-registrations and lines. That was the biggest struggle in the beginning when the, when the vaccine for COVID came out was you had to fall in a certain age demographic. You could only go to chains or to the county and you had to register and you had to uh, fill, out a, fill out all these extra forms and um, basically get in line. And when I found that I was able to go to my community pharmacy, like I was texting daily. I was like, do you, do you have, um, Pfizer in yet? And as soon as she told me she had Pfizer, she texted me and said, great. And I was like, he'll be there tomorrow. So go ahead. So, so you didn't, you didn't do appointments because your demographic doesn't support it. Right. And so you just staffed to handle the the line. Initially, we did have appointments, but nobody used them. Right. And the idea was of the appointments was it was to screen out people from outside of Camden. So I could always prioritize the Camden residents first. But, um, you know, what we did was we staffed up to the point you know, we brought on, you know, we brought on three nurses in addition to the pharmacy staff that we had. Uh, we had a we had a you know, we had a completely converted area. It's what you see behind me is the covid clinic. And we were our infrastructure supported our ability to do we could do five vaccinations at a time with social distancing and we were probably able to handle up to 250 vaccinations daily. Wow. Um, so and that was all we, the 250 daily was just in the pharmacy that wasn't doing any mobile. 
Right. Then we went into the schools and we did school clinics where we would we would send our staff out there. We did a lot of clinics like that. We offer clinics in churches, um, you know, anywhere where we saw that there was an underserved population that either maybe couldn't get as far as where we were. Uh, we would go out to them. Uh, but we did a lot of work with the schools and and vac- and doing vaccination for them. And it's sort of in August of last year, you know, as you know, the vaccinations were sort of humming along, uh, you know, we figured, you know what? Testing when the fall comes around is going to be where the next big thing is. And uh, we were ready for testing before people even really started getting into the testing. But when we got that real that spike in December and January, we were one of the only facilities that still had testing uh, available uh, because we, we we got so far out in front of it. And our priority with the lab that we partnered with, we were like number one. So if they had any supplies, they came to us first. And, uh, you know, in the height of that, that mid-December through late January, we were doing uh, 100, 100, 125 vaccinations in pharmacy a day, plus 250 uh, tests. And uh, we, even, we even went a step further. And when monoclonal antibodies became available, uh, we, we were able to get priority, um, you know, a, a facility priority to offer monoclonal antibodies, uh, which was really taking off until they pulled the plug on it. But um, again, you have, we, we aggressively went out and we noticed the need within our community and we set about to providing a solution and we're the solution. Um, what about other that, vaccinations during that time? Did you like flu and um, shingles yep. and were you weaving those in together or did those kind of like get ignored during that time? I'm more of a soft sell on this. Um, people were coming in and they were getting, you know, they were nervous enough about the COVID vaccine. So I didn't want to overwhelm them or risk them saying, you know, I, I don't want to do this by saying, you know, well, you're eligible for the shingles vaccine, you're eligible for that. We sort of waited and we used the data that we gathered um, during our all the you know our vaccination, all the people that came in for vaccinations. And we use that as more of a soft marketing. You know, you are a senior citizen. Here are some vaccinations you may want to consider. You know, I, 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 I've never really bought into the idea that, you know, we should. You know, I know that the chain pharmacies are real famous for this. My ex-wife is a, is a CVS pharmacist. She's got quotas. They've got to go out there and they've got to actively push this idea of getting flu vaccines. I, I don't think that that's I don't think that's appropriate professionally. And, you know, there's always a balance when you're in retail pharmacy about, OK, you know, revenue is important, but we're also professionals and that matters, too. And I, I never that's my style. I never I never felt comfortable going in actively, you know, taking people and cold calling them, so to speak, and saying, right. you, you need this vaccine. And did you ever think of getting that vaccine? It's just not, not, not really our style. So with as active as you are in the school board, and um, do you see ever a time putting, um, I guess, COVID test um, kits inside the school? So when a, a child comes into the school nurse, they know instantly, okay, great, You've had these symptoms. Let's swab your nose and put a mask on you. It's an interesting thing. Um, school nurses are district employees. And mm-hmm. as district employees, they belong to a union. Right. And the idea that they would do COVID testing 
it has to be negotiated through their union and the district doesn't okay. even want to get involved in it. So it's your solution is a common sense solution and it makes 100% good sense and good medicine. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the way it works, at least in this area. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking because like when my son got COVID, my husband picked him up. They thought, oh, it might be just a strep throat or a cold or something. But and then he picks him up. Neither one of them were masked in the car. And mm -hmm. uh, then he starts to go, my throat feels weird. And then they we get him COVID tested. And then the next day, my husband's like, now my throat's hurting. Yeah. Like they should have tested him at the school. Yeah, if they, if they would have tested him at the school, then they would have known. Hey, put a mask on, Dad. You need to put a mask on. We do work with we do work with um, Camden School District, among others, uh, where we go in and we handle their regular staff and student testing, uh, typically as part of their COVID mitigation plans. Uh, they 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 require that so many a sample of kids are tested almost every day. So we we already handle that, but I think that what happens is the school right now, excuse me, will call, uh, they'll tell the patients, go down to Bell Pharmacy and get a test. That, that's pretty much how they handle it. So we're accomplishing the same thing. Um, I don't think it's as convenient. I think that your solution is better, but then there again. Were, so there were some schools here that after the winter break, they were requiring you to bring a uh, do a COVID test before you came back to school. Yeah, there are all kinds of different stuff all over the country, mm -hmm. different ways. So tell us about the Independent Pharmacy Alliance. Um, yes. Yeah, the Independent Pharmacy Alliance. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a trade group, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, that was based on it was community pharmacist based, okay. and there's really two of them in New Jersey that are the big organizations. It's Garden State Pharmacy Owners. Uh, an independent pharmacy alliance. Over the years, being a pharmacy so long, initially I was in Garden State Pharmacy Owners, and then when Independent Pharmacy Alliance started, uh, I just joined them also. Uh, the two now kind of work together, even though they have their own individual rosters. And um, you know, I've gotten, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this, I've you know, spent 20 years uh, as an elected official in my township, and I've been retired of that since seven, 2018. Um, and I got involved with the Independent Pharmacy Alliance because it allows me to put a lot of uh, the political, um, I guess, skills and knowledge that I accumulated over all these years uh, to work in advocacy for uh, community pharmacy. And much of what we do, I mean, there's some things that with PBM reform and such that, you know, we're, that are, uh, you know, I, that's one part of it. But a lot of it is about using what we've that what what farms what independent community pharmacy has demonstrated in in the pandemic using this as a okay here's what else you could be allowing us to do and a lot of these changes uh you know just to to go backwards we can administer vaccines in certain situations but only by executive order and it's only in response to the pandemic um so a lot of those those emergency you know, authorities that we were granted during the pandemic, we're working to have made permanent. Um, they've already been demonstrated, but it requires a legislative change. Um, you're, we're working on initiatives that allow pharmacists um, piggybacking on what we've done uh, to be able to, to issue and administer uh, PrEP, whether it's the Truvada or Discovy, or now they've got the injectable Cabinuva, absent a doctor's prescription and under the authority of the Attorney General and the State Department of Health. Um, 
you know, uh, pharmacist prescription of oral contraceptives, uh, pharmacist being uh, authorized to administer a lot of the injectable um, injectable drugs for mental health. Uh, mental health patients were severely impacted by the by the COVID pandemic because their ability to get those injections that they used to receive monthly was tremendously inhibited. I mean, if they could get into their doctor's office and there was so much around it. Well, in our situation, we were already we already had the infrastructure to go and do these administrations in home. You know, doctor's offices just don't don't have that capability. So, you know, the ability of having that access. So much of the legislative work we do is about not letting everyone forget how well and all the, you know, all the praises that everyone gave independent community pharmacy. But okay, hey, we showed you we could do it. If we move the needle here, look at all these other things we can do in convincing legislators that, as I know in politics, um, you have to identify a problem and you have to identify a solution and that that solution is going to make constituents happy. So I focus on those three things with our, our legislators and uh, the Governor Murphy's administration has been very supportive of, that, of us in this endeavor. And we've got a lot of exciting things um, that are happening in Trenton. So so that's the the independent pharmacy alliances. Obviously, independence is in the name. The Garden State, is that independence as well? Right. They're independent pharmacies also. That was more of an ownership group, although independent pharmacy alliances, too. They act as buying groups. They have wholesalers okay. and contracts, but they also have – I'm in both of those groups. Not, I'm, in a, I'm in a completely different buying group, but I'm active in those groups for the promotion of independent pharmacy in general. Uh, so I work with them in, in advocacy – uh, and in raising the, you know, raising the profile of groups like New Jersey Pharmacists Association, where I'm the vice president this year, uh, it's more about the profession, expanding the profession of pharmacy uh, versus an economic model. But they offer that also. And you also have a role in the New Jersey Pharmacy Association, mm -hmm. which yep. is all uh, the pharmacies. You, you seem to me that guy who steps forward and everybody else steps back, right? <laughs> An active well, in the either, school like board. I say, either step forward or everybody step backwards. Yeah, VP, <laughs> president. Um, it is no, the, it is, it, you get ahead. sometimes there's a moment. And if you don't act in that moment, it passes and the window closes. Mm -hmm. And there was yeah, I, I, what independent retail community pharmacy did for this vaccination effort was phenomenal. It, it was failing with the, when the chains were administering it. It was yes. failing mm -hmm. when the county departments of health and the government were doing it. It wasn't until they allowed independent pharmacy to get off the sidelines did you see everything all of a sudden people started getting vaccinations and there wasn't oh, yeah. lines for days. And, and you know, we really demonstrated that, you know, we do more than just count pills. And uh, but that, you know, everything time moves on and perceptions can change. And before that happened, I felt it was, you. we had to drive our organizations now. This is what we've always wanted for all these years. Everybody's been dragging their feet on it. We've got to push and we have to push hard and we have to push effectively and we have to push efficiently. And being a politician, I know how to speak to politicians because I know how I would, I know what would work with me. And right. Uh, that's really what I bring to the to the groups to help mm -hmm. uh, advance our profession. You seeing a lot of success. We're seeing success now in the last year that we've not been able to to realize in the last seven to ten. 
that's that's how. But again, it it just takes that that push. It takes you have to have a perfect combination of circumstances to be able to realize the sorts of changes that we're asking for. Um, after doing what we did with the COVID vaccines, it's not as easy for the prescribers, you know, the, whether it's the board of medical examiners or, the, or uh, whoever represents the nurse practitioners to say, well, wait a minute, that's our that's our playpen, pharmacists, you got to stay out of that. They can't give that reason. Normally, they'd say we weren't qualified. Well, now we are. Right. You can't that say are. that. Right. You did. Right. Right. And like I used and I used the Narcan. We mm-hmm. can do Narcan. Well, why can't we do PrEP? Why can't mm-hmm. we do contraceptives? Aren't those all preventatives? If you're giving us this this ability to prescribe preventatives, why not let us go all the way with it? Um, you know, especially if we're addressing an issue that is still at a very crisis level in New Jersey, which is HIV. Mm-hmm. How's the um, I saw where New York, uh, this latest little COVID, COVID surge was kind of plateauing. What are you guys seeing in New Jersey right now? Well, I think it's all largely a matter of testing. Um, you know, the more people you test, obviously, you're the more, you know, the more positive tests you're going to see. A lot of people, uh, you know, you, you know, they just don't, they feel a little bit sick. They just don't bother. Well, now everyone goes and gets a COVID test. Right. So whereas maybe before they wouldn't have even thought anything about it, they would have taken some Sudafed and that would have been the end of it. Now they actually get a test. So I think we're seeing more cases, but also what we're not seeing is a spike in hospitalizations and deaths. And that's a real positive trend. You're never going to, people talk about beating COVID. You're not going to be COVID. Nobody's ever beat right. any of these viruses. So, you know, what you have to do is you have to, you know, this, virus, I have my own opinions about whether it came from nature or a lab. I tend to think it's synthesized, but that's because it's not reacting normally. Normally, you know, you get a spike in spread, but the symptoms are less. You know, the virus will mutate and it'll change, but it's more to keep itself going. Right. And it becomes weaker and weaker. And then it just becomes the common cold, which, you know, the common cold is a COVID virus, a coronavirus. So, um, I think what you're seeing is this virus is getting to that point. It's taking it more time, but that's because there seem to be unique qualities to the way this virus mutated that we don't typically see in, in normal viral transmissions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said you started in, in your grandfather's pharmacy when you were 14. Mm-hmm. You have three 14-year-olds. Is there any interest? Are they helping? Are they... <laughs> well, you know, it's it's hard to say what I do is not easy, um, you know, and that, and it's not for everybody. And, you know, that's what I often say. In fact, my, um, you know, my stepdaughter, Amanda, she just graduated last year and, you know, she wanted to give this, you know, give, you know, what I do a go. And, and of you can tell a, she, she bit off a little more than she could chew when yeah. it comes to it. It's, and of course, pharmacy is a lot different than when you were 14. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so listen, if, if, if you have an entrepreneurial bent, you know, mm-hmm. and you have a passion for your profession, the two of those areas can really come together and you can be successful um, in as an independent pharmacist. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a business side to this. And if you don't have if you're a clinician and don't have the business side, you're not going to make it. Um, you know, there's a combination of, you know, the business of pharmacy and the practice of pharmacy that just that just the synergy of the two uh, is something that over the years, and I've been doing this since, you know, I guess in 1992 when I graduated, over the years I've just developed an eye for, you know, where pharmacy can go. And if I can see it, 
you know, then I know I can get to it and make it successful. Um, we're offering pharmacogenomic testing now. Um, you know, again, another technology that, you know, I learned about largely from, from Cal Knowlton mm -hmm. uh, that basically is only done to people with patients that are in nursing homes. We're bringing pharmacogenomic testing to our whole population now by offering it through the pharmacy. Um, is that cash you know, we, though? That seems a bit, you know, to me that the, the uh, you know, I, I was hearing that they've had a lot of problems getting that paid for and urine kind of getting uh, it paid for Medicaid. and it had to be doctor prescribed in some States. Yeah. Well, so, I thought. Yeah, so how it still is, okay. We've, okay. We've, we've come up with a model. We formed a partnership with the national lab. Um, they have their own prescribers that we, uh, have the visit through telehealth. And uh, we also have a we also have a software program where we can tell if a patient's insurance will or won't cover it. Medicare covers it with no copay, and really that's the okay. that's the that's the demographic uh, that really benefits from this. And you know you know especially with Medicare and outcomes and trying mm -hmm. to prevent readmissions, there's so much problem with polypharmacy and patients getting. Uh, medications that just don't match what their body is going to do. This mm. this idea of individualization uh, is really the next thing, and I think over the next few years you're really going to see uh, an explosion in this in this pharmacogenomics. But what we're doing is, like we always do, is we're taking something that's available to the few, and we're finding a way to make it available to everyone. And again, it's one of those synergies of of practice and and um, and, and business. Uh, you know, something else that it's sort of flown under the radar is uh, cannabis dispensaries. We're actually opening, uh, hopefully soon, uh, the first pharmacy-based cannabis dispensary in the nation. Now, cannabis dispensaries, medical and otherwise, the medical ones all have to have a pharmacist as an employee. We're making the pharmacist the owner of the dispensary. And, uh, you know, it's a model that really appeals to prescribers so many prescribers want to prescribe cannabis to patients, especially to get them away from opiates. They where they're wary about the idea of giving them a card and sending them off to uh, a head shop. <laughs> so right. what we're doing is we're reestablishing that pharmacist patient um, prescriber dynamic and giving giving prescribers who want to prescribe the option to work with a pharmacist in, pa in a patient treatment plan that utilizes cannabis. Uh, we're initiating pharmacogenomic testing for patients who want to use cannabis medically. Uh, there's tests that can determine what their bodies will respond to most appropriately uh, with regard to like, is it a sativa or is it the, the, the you know, the, a lot of the, the pharmacodynamics of cannabis are so much so similar to what we do with um, with regular medications, and it's completely underutilized. So what we're doing is, you know, we're giving the, what I always like to say, the shy cannabis consumer, uh, maybe someone who really wants to try it but doesn't want to go to uh, a dispensary. Mm -hmm. They're not coming to a dispensary. They're coming to Bell Pharmacy. And, That's amazing. You know, right. And they're getting a, you know, our, our model is more of a spa and wellness approach, uh, you know, we call it Camden Apothecary at Bell Pharmacy, but it's like you would go to Sephora and get a, a makeup uh, consultation. That's one of the services that we're offering. So what we're doing, we're really, by the way, the cannabis companies do not like this idea whatsoever. They don't want to be in the pharmacy business and they don't want pharmacies in. Interesting. 
in the cannabis business. So we're taking, uh, it's a completely groundbreaking concept, but it's it's one that I've, I personally have been working on this since God, 2017. Um, but but yeah, it's it's such an exciting time. I mean, I hear so many people lament the death of the independent pharmacy and the professions going. I feel bad. I I I lament what's going. I should say I they should be lamenting and crying for the chain pharmacies. They're the ones that are going to get driven out by Amazon. They're the right. borders and the Barnes and Noble of the 2000s yep. that everybody thought I were said too that big in a to speech. fail. Yep. People want an experience. They want a relationship. They yeah. want different. And that's why I always say, do not compete with the chains. You won't win. You have to offer something that's not them. And people want that because they've just become – the chain, it's like, going to, it's like going to a mall anymore. And people want a different experience. Mm-hmm. They want yep. the independent to succeed. Mm-hmm. And what a great close. That was that was awesome. Um, I think we're out of time. That was amazing. Thank um, you so much for joining us today, yep. Tony. Appreciate it, and it was uh, really great to to meet you and, and get to learn about all that you've you're involved in and what you've achieved. Yeah, more than great, it was inspiring and it's really Absolutely. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I just you know wish uh, uh, wish every day we can make more of you because that's that's what <laughs> we need. So I'll tell you, my goal my goal is to get that. You know, I always say my competition isn't the chain. My biggest fear is somebody like me that's younger opens up next to me and does the same thing. But uh, in the advancement of the profession, I would agree. We need so many more motivated professionals to take this on and to real. And I try to let that the passion that I have inspire them. Yeah, I'm always saying that there's there's not enough uh, on the motivated side. All right. Well, thank you. It's great talking to you. Thanks, guys. Have me back anytime. And All right. Even if, you don't want to, uh, even if you don't want to do a podcast, I'm always, as you can see, very willing to talk. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you so Thanks, much, Tony. Tony. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Have a good day. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more pharmacy professionals like you.